0: Mr. Ryan, we tell all of our kids to like refer to adults as like Miss Katie, Mr. Josh. Just kind of made me think about that. She said Mr. Ryan, but then she added my last name, so it was more formal. (laughs) Anyway, um, welcome, welcome back. Uh, For those of you that missed last week, we'll do a little recap. Um, We are talking about Gideon, who is one of the heroes of faith that we have in the Bible. Um, There's several of them. A lot of them are found in the book of Judges, which is where Gideon's story actually takes place. Uh, The book of Judges kind of starts off right when Joshua dies. So we have Moses taking the Israelites out of Egypt. We have Joshua taking over when Moses dies. And then as soon as Joshua dies, we tee right into the book of Judges. So Israel's in the promised land. They do not have a king. They do not really have any formal leadership. They're just kind of a bunch of tribes living in this area, and um, they kind of start to follow this pattern of dysfunction. So they they follow God, they love God, but then eventually they start mixing in the culture of the day, different people groups as religious practices, and they start walking away from God, and they start worshiping other gods, and God kind of removes his protection from them and says, okay, well, we're just going to have to see how this plays out. Eventually... Some other people group comes in and takes advantage of Israel. They oppress them. They steal from them. They uh, abuse them. And so Israel eventually, after being mistreated, kind of comes back and goes, Okay, God, we we need you. Um, We're sorry. And God raises up someone from among them to lead them and to kind of point them right back on the right track, get everything kind of corrected again. And they basically serve as a judge over areas of Israel until the end of their life. But no one takes over after that, so then Israel is without any kind of formal leadership, and we start the process kind of all over again. Um, At this particular juncture, Midian, a nomadic tribe on the other side of the Jordan River, is oppressing Israel, and they've been doing it for seven years. So it's especially bad because they're not just taking things and, and running away with it. They're destroying things they can't take with them. So they come and they raid Israel, and it says they ravaged the land. And the Israelites are running to the cliffs, they're hiding in caves, they're trying to survive, um, and they're just really, really brought low. Um, and that's the point where we meet Gideon. God steps in and picks up this guy and says, Hey, I'm gonna have you lead, lead your people. And at first, Gideon doesn't even recognize he's talking to God, and he's he's not really acting like a leader, he's kind of scared, he's hiding. He, um, when he realizes this stranger is telling him he needs to like lead Israel, he's making up all kinds of excuses for why he can't do that. He's not qualified. Uh, And at some point during the conversation, he realizes he's talking with God and he realizes that he's kind of blamed God for the condition that Israel is in. And he realizes he's made excuses in front of God and he freaks out a little bit and kind of thinks that God's going to kill him. And God has to assure him, no, Gideon, you're going to be all right. Um, Gideon's first assignment is to go and take out the idols that his dad has placed in their own village. And Gideon does that. And he also has to give up and sacrifice a part of their livelihood. So a bull that was probably being used for their very survival, um, Gideon sacrificed to show his, his obedience to God. And he didn't quite do it perfectly because he kind of obeyed. Uh, he, He did it at night when no one would see, but he still obeyed, and it could have cost him his life because the town people there basically got together and wanted to kill him after they figured out he was the one that did it, but ultimately, his obedience and his faith became kind of a beacon for the people in his town and for his family and for a few of the tribes in the neighboring area because when the cry for war came in, they rallied behind him. And that's kind of where we're at right now. And one of the strengths of last week's sermon was that God sees us for who he already knows us to be, who he designed us to be, not based upon what we may look like right now or how we even view ourselves. Gideon didn't view himself as being anybody special. And as you will see in the coming story, he still struggles with uncertainty and doubt and he's not the most confident leader um, but God sees him as a mighty warrior. So, um, and as the story rolls out, we will see that that God doesn't quite give Gideon the game plan. He doesn't tell Gideon, hey, here's what's going to happen three days from now. You know, here's how this is going to roll out. Here's how I'm going to do this. Gideon has to trust God every step of the way and follow. So at every juncture, he has to make a choice. Am I going to follow God? Or am I going to let my doubts and my fears take over? Um, when I was in college, I worked several summers for a Christian summer camp, and after we graduated, me and several friends, we couldn't really work for the summer camp anymore because we had to get a job, couldn't take the whole summer off, but unless you're a teacher, then it works out pretty good, but um, we talked to the director, and we're like, hey, we don't mind coming back, like, for a week for teen camp, like, we could do something there, you know, we wouldn't be part of your staff per se, but we could make some big games. We could kind of like try and work the, the schedule to be more towards a teen-focused, you know, program. And he loved the idea. So he brought us in. And he goes, hey, look, we've got stuff you guys can use. We've got excavators. We've got bulldozers. We've got tools that you guys can just go have fun and do something big. So we did. And one year, I, I made some comment as we were leaving about we should do something with, like, catapults and launch something massive into, like, the meadow. And my, my buddy who worked with me on this whole thing kind of went home and made it, some plans. He's like, okay, I can, do, I can work with this. And he's super good at just anything dealing with his hands and building things. And his only fault is that sometimes he kind of, like, is a little over-optimistic in the time frame it takes to do some of these things. And when you're working with, uh, you know, in a summer camp, a lot of times stuff just comes up. And like you have to like delay and delay and delay so he tells me as we're, as we're meeting together at the beginning of the summer, hey I've been building a prototype, I've got like a six foot catapult that is working so we're in Home Depot and he's like we're going to build six 14 foot trebuchets which I don't know if you know what those things are but they're just these massive structures and um, I was like Sick? what? alright, we'll go for it <laughs> And so we had several volunteers coming to help us out that summer, and they'd never really worked with us before. And as you can imagine, stuff came up, as my foreshadow is kind of leading you guys on to believe. And um, we were supposed to do it on Tuesday, and that didn't work out, so then we kind of moved it back to Wednesday. And then we ran into some other problems. We had to go back to Home Depot and get some more supplies. That became Wednesday. We're working late into the night. 1 a.m., 2 a.m., getting up at 6 a.m. The people that are working with us are like their their morale is dropping steadily as sleep is being deprived. They're looking at me like, this is crazy. I'm like, look, trust me, this guy can do it. But in the meantime, I'm talking with my buddy at night. I'm like, are we gonna pull this off? Like, I don't really know what the game plan is here. You have all the designs are up in your head, and I'm not really sure what's going on. I'm trying my best to make sure that our our helpers are like on board here. Um, And it kind of reminds me of Gideon in this whole point because God is kind of doing the same thing to Gideon. He's basically just saying, trust me. I'm going to give you something crazy to do, but I need you to trust me. So, as the story rolls out, Gideon has a bunch of army guys who've shown up. Well, army might be a big word because they're probably just destitute. They're poor. They barely have supplies. And they've shown up. But he's got 32 thousand guys that have shown up and responded to the call, which sounds pretty good, until you realize that the number of the Midianites in the Jezreel Valley are 135,000 people. So Gideon's doing the math, It's like, okay, got to pep talk these guys, we have four. Every man is to kill four guys of the enemy, donuts, right? That's motivating. Four guys and donuts. We can do this. Every man, just four guys. That's not that many. Um, so God talks to Gideon. Oh, good. Yes, Lord. What are we doing? Okay, Gideon. Um, and I totally skipped a part now. I'm seeing my slides up there. So Gideon, let me back up a minute. Gideon, um, he, he's still uncertain because of this huge, you know, dynamic. Um, so he decides he needs to ask God to make sure that God is, is really leading him, and he's not just kind of like going to make a fool of himself. So on—yeah, uh, you can go to the next slide, Lincoln. So Gideon asked God for some kind of a sign. So he says, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place this wool fleece out on the floor— and if this dew, and if the dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day and he squeezed the fleece and wrung it, all the dew out of it and he filled a whole bowl full of water. But then we kind of, we kind of think about that and we go, well, scientifically, of course the fleece would have all the water. It would suck up all the water from the ground into the fleece, so... Okay, God, please do not be angry with me. But I just need to be sure that this is what's going on. Um, one more request. Just allow me to ask one more thing. This time, if the fleece is dry and all the ground is wet, then I'll be confident. And that night, God did so, and only the fleece was dry, and all the ground was wet. So, God, back to where we I took my little divergent point. Um, God talks to Gideon. He goes, okay, Gideon, here's the plan. You have too many guys. Really? Yeah. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to the guys and tell them, whoever is scared, whoever is trembling, not to be afraid, just they can go home. Like we don't have to worry about, you know, if they're scared, we, we can work without them. And he says, besides, if you have all the guys you have now, they're all going to be slapping each other on the back, saying how good they did. They're going to be like, man, you were awesome back there. And they're going to totally forget that I'm the one that helped them out. So Gideon's like, okay. He knows God is capable. God can do this. The part that Gideon's not really sure about is he's struggling with, is God going to do it? Does he believe that God is going to actually do what he promised? But Gideon believes and knows that God is capable and that God has promised him he's going to work with him. And so, um, he goes and he puts out the, re- the whole statement to the Israelites and goes, okay, whoever is scared, you can go home. It's all right. 22,000 guys went home. Two-thirds of his army just got up and walked away. He now has 10,000 guys. And Gideon's like, I really hope God knows what he's doing right now. And um, so he's doing the math. Okay, so 13. Now every guy has to kill 13 guys and then donuts. It's better be some good donuts. So he's, he, he pep talks the guys again, and he's like, okay, guys, um, that was significant, but it's okay. God's got, the, got our back. He's going to do this. And uh, so now it's 13 guys. Just take 13 guys. That, that's our goal. 13 guys. God talks to Gideon. Hey, Gideon. Oh, yes. Okay, what are we going to do? You still got too many guys. Really? Yeah. God, I'm trying to keep their morale high right now. Like that, They're looking at the whole army down there, and they're not really sure this is going to happen. Trust me, Gideon. Okay. So I want you to take all the guys out to this brook and let them drink the water, and I will tell you which ones to keep and which ones to send home. And it becomes apparent as Gideon is listening to God and saying, okay, you go home, you go home, you go home, you go home, you can stay. You go home, you go home. The God's making a decision based upon how they're drinking the water. Like if they're sticking their face down in the water and drinking, he's sending them home. But for anyone that's kind of being a little bit paranoid and and cupping the water in their hand and bringing it to their face, um, they get to stay. And in the end, Gideon sends home 9,700 guys. Yes, 300 dudes. And he's like, ah. Um, and God tells him, don't worry, Gideon. These 300 guys, I'm going to hand the Midianites over to you. The odds aren't good. Gideon's doing the math. It's about 450 guys that now everyone has to, to battle. He doesn't know the game plan. He doesn't know how God's going to win this battle. As far as he's concerned, everyone's got to pull out their sword and just start fighting until they can't stand anymore. Um, So if we can imagine kind of what that would look like, on a good day here at Emmaus, when we have like kind of a full service, I don't know, we probably have close to 250, maybe close to 300 people on a a big day. Um, The Midianite army had 135,000 to kind of bring that into a rough figure in our heads, you would have to take all of the population of Lincoln, add that to the population of Loomis, add that to the population of Rocklin, add that to the population of Auburn, and that's pretty close to the amount of people that were in the Midnight Army. So if you can imagine Gideon leading our church... (laughs) going up on a paintball tournament against all four of those towns, and we're thinking, okay, every one of you is important. No one gets shot. (laughs) Good luck, right? Um, So during the night, Gideon is is struggling with this, and, and God reaches out to him. God's methods are not our methods. His uh, his ways are not our ways. There's this whole, uh, there's this verse that always kind of makes me laugh in Psalms 23, verse 5. And it says that the Lord prepares a feast for me within the presence of my enemies. And I think of things like this, like this huge army who's about to like just open up on you. And God shows up and you're like, yes. And he pulls out a table and a picnic basket. And you're like, What? He's like, yeah, can you grab the corner of this, uh, this tablecloth and just spread it out? I've got this great cheese you've got to try. <laughs> and you're like, like now? Like, like, now doesn't seem like the right time. But he's not bothered by our situation or our circumstances. And everything he does is a method to try and, like, redeem us into understanding who he is. God can step into every scenario and, um, and just rework our perspective. So God, God talks to Gideon that night. He says, get up and go down to the camp because I'm going to give, you, uh, give the Midianites into your hand. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant and listen to what they are saying. And afterward, you will be encouraged to attack them. So Gideon does this. So obviously he's afraid. If I was Gideon, I'd be asking God, can you just tell me what they're saying right here so I don't have to go down there? But he goes down, and him and his his servant get down there. Um, And so we find that he gets down there, and he hears in a a tent somewhere nearby, he hears one of the people saying, hey, I, I just had this dream. And the soldier was saying, this round loaf of barley Came tumbling down the Midnight camp, it struck the tent with such a force that the tent overturned and collapsed. He's thinking barley bread. And so the next officer responds and goes, This can be nothing else, other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. Oh man, God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into their hands. And Gideon is like, What? But Gideon is so encouraged by this, he's in the middle of the midnight camp, and he bows down and worships God right where he's at. He is so encouraged by what God has, has just said and revealed to him. And in fact, there's no other time in the story of Gideon, the rest of the Bible, he's afraid or he's uncertain. He is, at this point, he's ready to go. So he rushes back. He rushes back to his camp he tells his guys, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. There's 300 of us. We're going to split into three groups, 100 each. I will need you to follow my lead. Everyone takes a torch, like, right, and a sword. Nope, put the sword away, okay? And a, and a pot. We're going to put the pot over the torch to hide it, and then we're going to take a horn. When do we grab our swords? <laughs> follow my lead. Okay. So his men go, and they basically sh- they break the torch, they go out near the camp. They break the, the pot so it shows the torch. They, they totally make a huge call with the ram's horn. And then they shout, you know, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the enemy in the middle of the night, they're so like just dumbfounded and, and waking up and kind of, they got sleepy bugs in their eyes. And, and they come out and they are completely confused. They start attacking each other. Gideon's men just stand and watch the show. 120,000 guys kill each other, and the other 15,000 take off running. They didn't even have to have a sword. They didn't have to do anything other than just show up. So a lot of times the story might end there. Most sermons that I've heard on Gideon end there. And I, I wanted to end there, actually, but I've been struggling with the story for what happens Next. And so I've kind of been wrestling with it a little bit. And um, I've had a few talks with some people this week, actually, that have never read Judges. And so I just kind of felt like if I didn't tell what happened next, that um, they might be a little confused. So we're going to touch on it. Um, What happens next is that Gideon's men take off and they chase the stragglers. They ask for help from the Ephraimites and they get it. Um, They ask a couple other towns for help and they don't give it. And Gideon's like, I'm going to remember that. And so Gideon goes after the, after the stragglers. He does capture them. He brings back uh, the spoils of war. He comes back to the towns that didn't help him, and he extracts revenge. And then uh, the people of Israel come to Gideon, and they say, hey, Gideon, um, you were amazing. Gideon is strangely quiet and does not seem to, like, revert the details back to the fact that God was the one that saved the day, um, And they say, so we would love to make you our king. Gideon's like, "Ah, no, no. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to be your king. And my children are not going to reign over you either. He goes, God's your king. But I'll take some gold from the the spoils of war. And they happily give it. And Gideon makes this golden ephod, which we'll come back to in a minute. Um, We see that Gideon lives a pretty lavish lifestyle. He has like 70 kids. Um, One of them... He names them, and the meaning of that kid's name is my father's king. Um, Gideon takes that golden ephod and he places it in the middle of his hometown. And what an ephod was, is it was a, it was a special garment worn by the Israelite uh, priests. And they sometimes would use it to kind of like inquire of God and kind of figure out, hey, you know, what is God's ruling? Some simple like yes, no answers kind of a deal. Um, you can read about that later. But um, so we don't really know why Gideon did it. Maybe he didn't believe that the, the priests over at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was kept, were doing a good job. And so he was setting up some kind of like Levitical center right there in his hometown. Maybe it was just a reminder, the fact that God saved them. Maybe it was a way of Gideon to try and keep communication between him and God, to be like, God, remember me? Like, I, I, I obeyed you, like, you have to keep talking to me. Um, we don't know. It doesn't say why he did it. But in the end, it says it became a snare to both Gideon and his family, and the Israelites worshiped it. And eventually, when Gideon died, um, the Israelites went back to worshiping false gods. So the story kind of sounds like a bummer at the end. But here's the thing Gideon is still considered a hero of faith in Hebrews 11. And God still references him as like a significant person who had faith in him. And when we look at like the heroes of the Bible, we try and think, what did Gideon actually do in this whole thing? He just showed up. That's all he really did. He had the faith to believe that God would do what he said he would do and that God was capable of doing it. He didn't know what God's plan was. He showed up and that's where his, his real strength was at. Sometimes God just needs us to show up, and we'll see what he's going to do. Um, the Bible often looks at their heroes and is very honest with their faults. They don't hide. They kind of use this like wide-eyed realism at the different people that are our leaders in Israel. Moses, David, Solomon, all have just huge detrimental faults. And God uses them. And He makes them great. And part of that, I'm, I'm sure, is because if they were great, we would look at them and be like, man, you are awesome. I could never be like that. But the real truth is, in their faults, we recognize how merciful and gentle God is towards His people and to us. I mean, Gideon's an everyman, he's one of us. He's scared, he's unsure, he's just trying to survive. And so are we. Israel is one of us. I mean, they're constantly making mistakes and walking away from God. And yet God keeps coming back. He keeps being gentle with them. He keeps being graceful towards them. Um, and that's super encouraging. We don't have some big litmus test. We, it's not about our qualifications. It's about the goodness of God. And our faith And our belief and our understanding in who God is and our ability to trust blindly and just to hold God's hand is where the strength of the story really shines. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, you are a good, good Father. And you use all of us for your good work and You continue to show your love and affection uh, through all of our mistakes and foibles and uncertainties. Um, Thank you for making us a part of your kingdom. Never let go. Never give up on us. Guide us gently and be merciful for our faults. We do love you, God. Come home soon. Amen. So,